Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Welcome. I'm Josh. I'm Chava. And we are super, super excited to be doing this. Yeah, we are. This has been something we've been talking about for a long time, and it's finally here. So what is Star Trek and the Jews? What do we want to do here? I don't know, Josh. What do we want to do here? This should in no way resemble the weird email forward you get from your uncle that's like, ah, this person is Jewish, and this person is Jewish, and this person is Jewish. I think that we want to use Star Trek as a way of looking at serious issues in the Jewish world, Judaism, uh, the religion, the Jewish people, Jewish culture, Jewish history. Yeah, and we should have some fun here. Yeah, Star Trek is fun. Two podcasts I really love are a podcast called Judaism Unbound that looks at radical new ways of reimagining the Jewish world, and and one called Greatest Gen that watches Star Trek and makes fart jokes. I think if we can try to synthesize those Somewhere a little bit. Somewhere in between, bit, we, yeah. We might have some success. That might be good. Can we drill down like specifically into some things we want to do here? Yeah. We want to analyze Jewish problems in Star Trek as well as Star Trek problems in Judaism. Yeah. Kind of. Oh, right. I see both angles of that. So we could be like, huh, the replicator, can that make kosher food? Could you replicate kosher pork? But we could also be like, huh, assisted dying. Star Trek has views on it. Judaism has views on it. What do we think of what all those people say and put our own spin on it too? We could look at the ways Star Trek has portrayed Jews. In like the literal sense, it's really slim. But there's both characters and species that either are coded as Jews or maybe are being used as a metaphor for Jews or that maybe they weren't intentionally made to be a metaphor for Jews, but we see something Jewish in them that we want to explore. What do you mean by coded? So coding probably is best known from like the language of queer coding and queer coding is when a character in TV or film is given traits that may resemble or may lead the audience to think that the character is likely to be gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, but it's never made explicit. And queer coding is like neither inherently positive or negative. It's more like a phenomenon that happens. And so sometimes it can be used to make like good representations and sometimes it can be used to make bad representations. I think that it's fair to say that there are definitely characters in Star Trek that are coded as Jews and that that's something we should explore both the nature of those characters and what it means that Jews are being portrayed in media this way. So we're talking about Jews coded into Star Trek. We're talking about Jewish laws explored in Star Trek. Star Trek and Jewish themes. I think it's worthwhile to think about episodes of Star Trek that have either explicitly dealt with matters pertinent to Jewish history or that draw parallels to Jewish history. One that that you and I have talked about really wanting to do an episode about is an episode of Deep Space Nine duet that really uh, mirrors the kind of ethical conversation we could have surrounding certain elements of the Holocaust. Yeah. I think we should also look at the impact and legacy that real world Jews have had on Star Trek and the stories of actors, writers, and producers. Making a big list of people who are Jewish who worked on Star Trek is not interesting to me, but looking at the way their Jewishness impacted creative decisions that shape Star Trek, I think that's worth exploring. And that's trickier because that requires us to really dig in, like not just watch an episode and have opinions on it. Yeah, definitely. I also think that it'll be 
kind of like the time of the Talmud when people are analyzing very obscure problems that might happen in your day-to-day life. What happens if I have some stuff like on my shirt and I have to scratch it off and it's Shabbat and I have to like grind and like that breaks one of the rules. So it's kind of going to be like that, but a little bit more in this fantasy world where we have nothing that would happen realistically to us. Questions that Jews would definitely ask about this type of world that they live in. That's a really Jewish thing to do. The Talmud, which is the collection of the oral Jewish tradition, contains not just like real world hypotheticals, but also hypotheticals that when the redactors of the Talmud were putting that together did not actually occur in their life. They spend all kinds of time and effort talking about temple sacrifices and agricultural laws in the land of Israel in a time when they had no power to implement agricultural laws in Israel and certainly they were not making sacrifices because there was no temple. Yeah, I mean anytime the the world advances technologically the Jews kind of have to figure out what they're going to do with that. Shabbat has to adapt to all different TV, lights, everything. Hava, can you define Star Trek and define Jews? (laughs) Define Star Trek and define Jews? Yeah, easy question. Okay, can I start with Jews? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to define Jews. So in my definition of Jews, I suppose that I would say that it's anybody that feels as though they are Jewish and has some historical connection to it as well. Or in the other sense, if somebody doesn't feel any connection to Judaism, but has a grandparent that's Jewish, I still kind of consider them a Jew. Even if like... Isn't that the definition from the Nazis? Yeah, that is. That is. I kind of take the Nazi definition. Whoa, I think that oh if, my God. I think if Hitler would kill them, then they're a Jew. That's certainly the approach that the state of Israel takes with the, I kind of with agree the law with of that. return. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like, there's never really been one single Judaism as a single unified religious viewpoint. And Jews are unlike other ethnic groups, but unlike other religious groups as well, because like we blur the lines between religion, ethnicity, nationality, culture, heritage, tradition, and... Which a lot of other groups, I guess, kind of do as well. Right. That I don't know as much about. You know, if you and I were to meet someone of no religious persuasion whatsoever who came from a Jewish family, we would think of them as a Jew. Yeah, and And it's happened many times. And if you and I were to meet someone who converted to Judaism and has no Jewish ancestry whatsoever, we would think of them as a Jew. Yes. And there are like lines of the Jewish world that are sort of fuzzy around the edges. And I don't think it's necessary for us to prod at all of those lines. No, and I, I don't think I would. I've had a lot of people say that like, oh, if your dad is Jewish and your mom isn't, then you're not a Jew. But even if your like, entire dad's side of the family like perished, then who are we kind of to decide if someone else decided you're a Jew and you, your family died for it? Orthodox and conservative Jews have, I'm going to throw a big word out there, a halachic, like Jewish legal definition of what a Jew is, which means somebody who either converted to Judaism or had a Jewish mother. But I kind of like the the rules birthright uses, which is like, uh, if you think of yourself as a Jew and others in a Jewish community think of you as a Jew, you're in the club. And oh, if you have a Jewish parent and you practice no other religion, you're in the club too. Uh, that's, that's helpful for us. Yeah. What's Star Trek? Oh, Star Trek is a huge world invented through television series that is our future. Yeah, so Star Trek started as this scrappy TV show in 1966, a bandwagon to the stars, and it has had many films and spin-off series since then. 
there's a certain stream of Trekkie that will say, ah, the canonical Star Trek is only what appears in film and television. But I think we can take a more expansive view of Star Trek. Star Trek, to me, includes fandom. It includes the women who started letter-writing campaigns to bring the original series back for the third season. It includes the people who are dressing up and going to conventions. The people in the weirdest pockets of Reddit who want to go examine every single tiny detail of the canon and pull it apart. It includes all kinds of licensed materials uh, novels and comics, video games, action figures, a whole merchandising world. I think that it shouldn't be on you and me to police what is and isn't Star Trek. Kind of know it when you see it. We feel everything is fair game. I think that my favorite thing about Star Trek, though, and I think it's like definitely part of what is Star Trek, is that it actually, because of how many nerds in quotation marks love it so much and how many of those people go and work in technological fields and engineering and all of that it does seem that our world does a little bit mimic the star trek world the first example i can think of is the ipad i remember when that came out it was like that is so obviously just directly pulled from star trek the flip phone the flip phone there's people working on making medical tricorders yeah i mean it's basically inspiration for engineers to construct and something we'll talk about a lot is that in many of its iterations, Star Trek has tried to use science fiction to like imagine a better world for us. So even though it's set in the future, it's sort of about us in the present projecting an ideal into the future. And it doesn't always do that. Like sometimes it's just a big fun action adventure yeah. in space. Even in the original series, there, there are plenty of original series episodes that were just horror monster episodes. And those are fun too. Those are not not Star Trek either. Maybe we should situate ourselves in the world of Star Trek and in the world of Jews and Judaism. Okay, go for it, Josh. Where are you in the world of Star Trek? Okay, so basically I was raised on Star Trek. <laughs> um, my dad was a big fan and my mom was a moderate fan. We watched it all together as a, as a family. I remember one of my earliest Star Trek memories is watching the episode Second Chances of Next Gen with my dad. And I didn't understand why there were two Rikers and why one had a yellow shirt and one had a red shirt. And he tried to diagram out for me the transporter error. It goes back a few generations. My dad watched Star Trek with his family all together as a family. And my family, we didn't stay through the whole run. But I remember sitting down with my whole family to watch the premiere and the finale of Star Trek Voyager and like very often we would gather as a whole family to watch an episode. I really like Star Trek and Star Trek frames the way I think about the world. I've seen it all. If we're talking like original series and animated series some of them I've only seen as a kid and so the memories are a little bit looser but it's my go-to and if I'm like cooking working on something I might have you know next gen running in the background because I, I just love watching Star Trek areas that I don't know much about I'm not connected to like the fandom with a capital F I've never been to a convention the whole world of fan productions and cosplay also like the comics and novels and games I, I don't really know that much about that and so that's a gap in, in my Star Trek knowledge, I guess. How about you? I guess I was also a little bit raised on Star Trek, although definitely not as my family was not totally enmeshed in it. My mom grew up as a Trekkie. I mean, she was in high school when the original series came out um, and she was um, obsessed with it, according to my aunt. And 
everybody else would stand around kind of, oh, why is, uh, why is she watching that again? Okay, well, she, she was the one that was just watching it by herself, kind of. When I was a child, I guess like around four or so, is when Voyager was playing. And it was my mom's favorite show at the time. So I would sit with her and watch it. And that would be really fun. Although at that age, I mostly thought of it as sometimes really scary. And then other times, strong female characters. Voyager is scary. Like you could accidentally go faster than warp 10 and get turned into a lizard. I was a f- very afraid of the Borg. Like very, very, very afraid. Yeah, they're they're like they're really scary space zombies. Yeah, and it's all dark. I was afraid of the dark. One of the hesitancies that you had when we talked about doing this podcast was that you are in the process of expanding your Star Trek footprint. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I was uh, I watched Voyager as a child. I did watch it again later at some point. I think in undergrad. I watched Next Gen in undergrad at some point. Right now, I'm watching. DS9 with with my partner Adam. Dr. Adam. Dr. Adam, sorry. And uh, so it'll be kind of interesting for us to go through watching Star Trek while thinking of this sort of in the back of my mind and framing it in that in that light. You've seen a little more Star Trek than two than that. I've also seen a lot of the original series. I'm I'm on Discovery. I've seen all of that. I don't have any intention of watching Enterprise. You know, it has its moments and it also has just hours after hours of archer sneaking around and doing bad karate it's the kind of an uneven show yeah but it has redeeming qualities i think especially in the fourth season the acting and the writing never really get better but it does some really fun world building i think in the fourth season they could see the writing on the wall that they were going to get canceled and they just swung hard into the fan service and so for somebody who like me who likes to think about like what does the Vulcan government really look like? And how did the Andorians and Tellarites interact in the 22nd century? Like Star Trek Enterprise season four gives some some answers like what's going on with those Klingon foreheads? <laughs> they finally give us an answer, but I, I think it's a middling one. Oh, well. Wait, what? What is it? The smooth headed ones are as a result of Okay, you know, like, Khan's people, the Augments from the 1990s and the Eugenics War? So in a previous episode of Enterprise, a bunch of Augments who had escaped and yada, 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 ran through a Klingon bird of prey and, and taken down the crew really quickly. So Klingons tried to make their own Augments, but then it, like, mutated with this virus and infected all these other Klingons and, like, ravaged the Empire. You know, it's a little uneven, and a lot of people who had worked on the original series had always just kind of said, well, we would have liked to make the Klingons more alien instead of, you know, just painting them with brown makeup that looks really horrific watching it today. Yeah. Uh, And that you should just use your imagination when you're watching the original series. And... I don't think that's necessarily wrong. In the world of television, there's some times when TV tries to be theater. When you go to watch a play, you don't get mad at the play because like, wait a second, this bar was the apartment a second ago. Yeah. And then there's cinema where you expect it to like more accurately reflect, you know, the realism and sets and things like that. And more often than not, because it was the 1960s, The original series is more theater than cinema. To a lesser extent, that's also true of later series. Like, if it's Deep Space Nine and they get into a big fight with Klingons and all the blades come out and they're stabbing each other, but there's, like, no blood anywhere, well, that's theater more than cinema. And and I'm okay with that because uh, Star Trek, I think, has always been more about the ideas. Yeah, it's definitely not for the hardcore sci-fi person that's, well... 
I guess some people would disagree with that, but I don't think it is. If you're really into the like the science and the the possibility of that actually happening, then I don't know if Star Trek is the place for you. Right, and you are a serious scientist. I, I am a serious scientist, although I take issue with the warp core. Yeah, it's definitely the conceit of the whole show. That and like the crowded galaxy in general, like the galaxy being teeming with alien life. Uh, actually, that I believe. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, I don't think they look like us, which in Star Trek they do, but that's the theater. Yeah, they wouldn't all be coming out of central casting. Ah, but these ones have a slight ridge on their forehead. <laughs> and these ones have a little flop on their chin. They're aliens. Yeah, no, I don't think that. But I do think that they're everywhere, teeming. We should situate ourselves in the Jewish world as well as the Star Trek world. And it's funny because you and I come from different places, but sort of ended up in where we are in our lives now in kind of a similar place. Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. So I was raised modern Orthodox. I grew up in a fairly religious home, keeping Sabbath, keeping kosher. Okay, so I went to Jewish day school uh, that teaches Torah and Talmud, Navi, all of that. Um, I speak some Hebrew because of that. My dad prays three times a day. I was not considered a human in the minion because of that bridge between orthodox and the modern world but what do you mean on by the that? other oh i think modern orthodox is kind of in this place where they're trying really hard to be part of the world i mean for example my mother's a scientist she's very religious um so there's some clear divide between that type of religious person and let's say a Hasidic person but then there's also the side that's still orthodox. In other words, you as a woman were not counted uh, for any purposes of quorum, either in your day school or in your home for religious obligations that required a certain number of people to Correct, attend. yeah. At the same time, like, my mother would want us to go to the all-female reading Megillah, because um, she's definitely a feminist. Um, and are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I think that was one of the big things that actually pushed me out of modern orthodoxy is that I am a woman and I feel that there isn't always the place for women there. But that's me speaking for myself and a lot of women feel very differently. Right. And I think like you and I definitely know a whole host of Jewish Orthodox feminist women who don't feel that their feminism and their Orthodox Judaism are in conflict or at least feel like they can navigate that conflict, yeah. which is not to say that, that you're wrong for saying that you didn't want to be part of that anymore. Yeah. Which sort of brings me to like, where are you now? Oh, so now I don't really define myself as anything. I find it important to me that I'm... Jewish. I think that's crucial. I'd like to raise my kids Jewish. I want them to have some connection to their heritage. I don't eat non-kosher things, really. Holidays? I do holidays, but I don't observe them in the orthodox sense. Like, okay, I go to synagogue sometimes, or I'll keep Passover and Sukkot. All of the holidays, actually, I do something. I think about Shavuot. Okay, two years ago on Shavuot, me and my partner had you and Dr. Adam and some other people over. And on Shavuot, we had like a big dairy potluck. Eating dairy is like one of the things associated with Shavuot. I actually think I wasn't there. Oh, you weren't there. Oh, you were invited. I was invited. I wanted to go, but I think I was actually celebrating it with my family. But then last year at Shavuot, the four of us were all at a wedding and we were all like, ah, I really wish I could be doing like Tikkun Lel Shavuot. Maybe go down to the JCC and stay up all night learning about interesting Jewish topics. But, but our friends yeah. were getting married and we were like, yeah, I really don't want to miss that wedding. Yeah, I wasn't going to take priority over going to see our friends get married. No, but I definitely was like, ah, I wish I could do Shavuot. Yeah. 
And this year we will do Shavuot. Yes. <laughs> Why don't I situate myself in the Jewish world? I would think of my family as bridging that secular traditional divide. Um, my parents are both from smaller towns where like being Jewish made them a lot more distinct. And even if they didn't grow up religious, because they're from these smaller Jewish communities in smaller towns, I think the identity really stuck to them and therefore got passed along to me. I grew up in a conservative synagogue, Betzedek, uh, where I'm still a member and still very involved. I don't really think of myself as a conservative Jew, and conservative Judaism is... It has a weird label because it's actually a liberal denomination, but it's a denomination that says like halacha still applies, but we should interpret it liberally. Like in my heart, I'm really a reform post-halachic Jew, but I like belonging to a conservative synagogue because I like that they have the authenticity of traditional ritual and liturgy. Uh, and that's really comforting to me and very familiar to me. I like my community at Bethsaidic. It's big enough that I can grow with it. And I have a one-year-old and I feel like I can bring her up there and find a Jewish future for her uh, in that community as well. I've explored a lot of other denominations. I spent some time in Israel with an Orthodox organization and, and kind of flirted with that for a little while. Uh, my wife came up like very much in reform, going to reform summer camp. She was in Nifty, which is the reform youth group. And so I've had exposure to a lot of that uh, through her as well. And I think of myself as someone who's like in the process of learning about Judaism. I don't really have very much formal Jewish education. I did like after school Hebrew school, took courses in university. I take courses for fun on an ongoing basis. A big gap in my knowledge is that I, I never really went through like a formal curriculum. I didn't like sit down systematically with the Tanakh and like, ah, what does Rashi think about this okay, one? Okay, yeah, and, I definitely and, did that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think there's a good balance here in that you have a formal Jewish education and I have a formal Star, Star Trek, Trek education. education. <laughs> and I am a Jewish learner and you are a Star Trek learner. And of course, like we're both students of the world and of life and and all of our knowledge is incomplete. We're learning as we go. And For I sure. think that's going to be part of the fun of this podcast. If we came in with encyclopedic knowledge about all of Star Trek and all of Judaism, I think this would be boring. Yeah, definitely. We got to muddle through it a little bit. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to trench our way. Okay, I have a problem. So Gene Roddenberry, the founder of Star Trek, Trekkies sometimes call him the great bird of the galaxy. Oh. He really, really did not like religion. And a lot of Trekkies will say, like, there's no place for religion in Star Trek. Can I, can I read you a quote from Gene Roddenberry? Please. Religions vary in their degree of idiocy, but I reject them all. For most people, religion is nothing more than a substitute for a malfunctioning brain. Gene Roddenberry was asked a number of times at conventions and college lectures if there was a chaplain aboard the Enterprise, and he would always give the answer that there is no religion in the 23rd century. Does he have another answer? He doesn't have another answer, but I think that it is still worthwhile for us to explore Jewishness and Star Trek. And there is a troubling side to him also. Okay, I want you to brace yourself because this one's going to kind of sting. Oh no, I'm not ready. In 1981, a journalist named Sheldon Teitelbaum was interviewing Gene Roddenberry for the 25th anniversary of Star Trek. And at the end of the interview, he asked him, and this journalist had written for the Jerusalem Post and had often written about Jewish issues. 
And he asked him if there was a Jewish quality to Star Trek or the Federation. And Gene Roddenberry's response was pretty shocking. Okay, brace yourself. Okay, I'm ready. I'm holding on to the table. You Jews have a lamentable habit of identifying those characteristics in a society that you deem positive and then taking credit for inventing them. Chava, the shocked blank look that you are giving me across the table, unfortunately, is not caught on audio. Okay. <laughs> and let me give you another one. So the same Wait, journalist... Wait, no, I can't get through that one first. Let me get through that. The same journalist then spoke to Leonard Nimoy a decade later about Gene's possible anti-Semitism. And Leonard Nimoy, who you know I take as authoritative on these matters, said... Gene was anti-Semitic, clearly. I saw examples not only of him practicing anti-Semitism, but of him being callous about other people's differences as well. Hmm. Now, contrast that with the image of Gene Roddenberry that he put forward of himself as a person, which was that he was a humanist who had a, a vision for a utopian future where humanity had put behind itself all of the differences of the past where war, poverty, and intolerance no longer existed and where humans all work together in harmony for the betterment of themselves and the galaxy. I feel like it's almost a little ironic because I sort of see Star Trek as exactly what he says the Jews do, is this like place where the humans have made it and they know everything that's right and wrong and they're bringing all of these things to the aliens, but oh no, we can't interfere with their barbaric ways and have to make sure that they get to be their, their themselves and get to the place that we're at, but, you know, let them get there themselves. Prime directive. Right. And, you know, Gene Roddenberry, I think that if you ask Gene Roddenberry if there should be a podcast called Star Trek and the Jews, it would take him one second to say absolutely not never. I don't care. I don't care. But also, film and television are not run by someone sitting in a captain's seat. It's more like a Council of Federation Ambassadors. <laughs> and uh, I promise, promise, promise that this podcast is not going to be a list of every Jew who ever worked in Star Trek. But since we're talking about Gene Roddenberry having, you know, strong views about this, it's worth saying that, like, from 1966 to present... There have always been Jews sitting on that Federation Council. Herb Solo, Fred Freiberger, Lou Scheimer, Harv Bennett, Rick Berman, Michael Piller, Ira Stephen Baird, J.J. Abrams, Alex Kurtzman, Michael Shabon. In every iteration of Star Trek, there have been Jews involved at the highest levels of the creative decision-making process. And I also think we should talk about, and it's kind of controversial, but like the so-called Roddenberry myth. And so I mentioned Herb Solo. And Herb Solo was essentially like the suit for the original series. He was an executive at Desilu who was like responsible for setting their budget and giving them their green light and saying how many episodes they would order. He's someone who had been in a number of oral histories quite critical of the role Gene Roddenberry said he had in Star Trek. He basically said that Gene Roddenberry's involvement in Star Trek was much more limited than is commonly known that he took credit and tried to minimize the work of others like Gene Kuhn, Bob Jessman, Matt Jeffries, Dorothy Fontana, Leonard Nimoy, and Herb Solo himself. And I think there's also a case to be made that the common conception that we have of Gene Roddenberry as this person who created Star Trek in order to advance humanism is actually something that came out after the original series. 
that the original series came out 66 to 69. Of course, Gene is only involved up to 68. But then in the 70s and 80s, Gene Roddenberry becomes a humanist. And because he can't sell a new TV show, he's making a living by doing conventions and college lectures. And that's where he really talks about the humanism in the show. And I wonder to what extent Gene Roddenberry believed his own marketing about this incredible utopian vision he tried to create for himself. Because, you know, watching the original series, sometimes it has that. Sometimes it delves into these tough issues, but but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it has really different, even like sort of conservative messages that are, are hard for Trekkies who were raised in that kind of Star Trek is a utopian kind of lefty socialist vision of the future. Really? So, it makes me want to puke to watch the original series. Always? A lot of the time. I had to stop, actually. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, is it the misogyny? It's the misogyny, yeah. I think you could watch it as a kid and or like if it's nostalgic to you. That makes sense to me. But I, I really, I trudged through a lot of it. And uh, there are just so many times I want to see like a green woman who is hitting on Kirk. Instead of, you know, the green woman who is being sold as a sex slave and Captain Pike thinks that's like a totally reasonable thing to be happening. Yeah. Uh-huh. There is a podcast that I love and that I try to never miss an episode of called Women at Warp, which is like a feminist intersectional analysis of Star Trek. And I think that actually like listening to that podcast has helped me look at the original series with new eyes and eyes that also allow me to enjoy it for what it is while still being critical of it. Like maybe a way for you to watch the original series again and not go crazy with it is to watch with a person who shares your viewpoints and who you can like be making fun of the hammy parts because it is really hammy. Yeah, for sure. And also be like calling out the blatant misogyny and other, you know, there's some casual racism and things like that thrown into. It's tough, right? Because on the one hand, Star Trek in the 1960s was progressive for its era and things like having one of the first interracial kisses on uh, scripted television in the United States, talking about issues like birth control, uh, like the role of democracy in society, civil rights, things that like you could only talk about in sci-fi because then the censors wouldn't get clued into it. But watching it with our modern sensibilities, it really fails so often. That being said, I did I did enjoy some of it in that nostalgic kind of way, like, or even just hamming it up. Um, but yeah, I I find that the as a woman, it's a bit difficult to watch the original series. Although I'm surprised that like he feels so strongly about religion in general, just because being a humanist is definitely religious. How so? Because it's it's a belief. He believes that the world is going to get to this point where everyone's equal and that that future is possible. Kind of bleak. I think this is something that we're going to have to wrestle with throughout the series of like applying the lens of Jewishness, which has, as we said, like both a religious component, but also ethnic, national, cultural, tradition, heritage, yada, yada, versus the like imposed secularism that we think maybe influenced Star Trek, but but maybe sometimes it didn't. And also, we know that there are people like Leonard Nimoy who explicitly used their Jewish heritage and Jewish culture to affect creative decisions that they made in Star Trek. And we should poke at that more. Chava, I think what we should do now is go to Reb Alert. <laughs> what, what do we do? Reb Alert? Well, it's sort of like Red Alert. Oh. Instead of 
raising the shields and uh, making sure everybody goes to their tactical stations. We hope you lower your shields. We hope you lower your shields because in Reb Alert, we are going to bring in a teacher to uh, impart a little wisdom on us. They're not always going to be a rabbi. Reb, of course, is an, another word for rabbi. I think we can loosely interpret Reb to be... Teacher. Yeah. That's wh- fine. Which is the meaning of the word rabbi, yeah. isn't it? I think it's the meaning of the word Rebbe. So this week for Reb Alert, we have my own rabbi, uh, Reb Steve Warnick, the senior rabbi at Beth Zedek. Delay that order, number one. Red Alert. <laughs> All right, everyone, we're at Reb Alert with Rabbi Stephen Wernick of Beth Zedek. Uh, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. I want to take you back almost two years ago, and this is when I knew that you would be the right person one day for this show. You were here as not the senior rabbi, but as the candidate for the position of senior rabbi. It's a really hands-on process to become a senior rabbi at Beth Zedek. You schlep you around for four days, you meet with lots of people, but the big centerpiece is Saturday morning services. And I think maybe you got your name in before telling the whole congregation that you are a Star Trek fan. Well, the goal when you come to a congregation and you want to introduce yourself so that they know something about you uh, is uh, is really to, to tell them a little bit about you. So I think actually what I what I started with there was uh, a, I had both a Star Wars and a Star Trek reference. Star Wars, my, my cousin Paul Hirsch is the film editor for the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, so I've been a Star Wars fan since the movie came out. And Star Trek, my parents say that when I was a kid, they said that whenever Star Trek came on, that's when I would stop crying. So, you know, I was born in 67. Um, the show was on till 69. Um, I didn't really get into it into syndication into the 70s like most people um, did. But uh, anyway, that's family legend. Definitely the only time in my life I have seen someone bring up being a Trekkie in a job interview and get the job. <laughs> <laughs> so can you bring me back to your first memories of Star Trek? You know, I was probably 9, 10, 11 years old uh, watching the original series. Uh, on TV and in syndication and reruns. What I loved about the show was, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, this was right on the heels of space travel, of the United States landing on the moon. And then in the 70s, it just seemed like, you know, these notions of going beyond the moon into space were, were more realistic. And so this this TV show that imagined trekking um, through the universe and meeting alien life forms and just the space exploration, its mission to go out and seek new life and so forth, was just totally captivating uh, as, a, as a young person. Uh, the uniforms were colorful. There was a lot of action. There was uh, intrigue. There was conflict. But at, the, at its core, what I think I resonated most with Star Trek is what everybody does, and that is that Gene Roddenberry just had this incredible way of exploring contemporary issues through the lens uh, of this television show, um, issues of race, issues of war and peace, issues of, uh, of climate, of poverty, um, of food distribution and, and equality and, and so forth. I mean, all the things that were going on and were important in the world, it, this was a fantastic way to, to experience it. 
And I think also uh, my father's a rabbi. My mother was a Jewish educator. I was brought up in a very Jewish, in a very Jewish home filled with Jewish values and practice. And the the themes of the show just also resonate resonated with Jewish values and Jewish themes as we approach universal problems in the world. Does anyone stand out to you as a, a character you really identified with? I always identified with captains. My favorite captain is from Next Generation, Jean-Luc Picard, and so I'm excited about the Picard series that is now streaming. I, I thought he was um, the most realistic in terms of a captain in the sense of his thoughtfulness and, and the seriousness in which he did it. I resonated, of course, with Spock because he just seemed very Jewish. His symbol uh, with his hands comes from, from the Kohanim, from the priestly uh, tradition within Jewish tradition. So you mentioned Gene Roddenberry's vision, and in some ways it's very inspiring, but in some ways it doesn't align with at least my worldview in that he was uh, ardently anti-religious and believed, oh, there would never be religion in the 23rd century. All human religions would be abolished. Looking at the entirety of canonical Star Trek, certainly we find many characters and species that seem coded as one religion or another, but we definitely don't have any character in the, the 23rd or 24th century who comes out and says, I'm Jewish, says, oh, sorry, I can't go on the away mission, it's Shabbos, uh, can I set this replicator to kosher? That that's not happening. So, uh, are there are there Jews in the twenty third and twenty fourth century? I think the strength of Judaism has been its ability to respond to the challenges of the time. Embedded within the Jewish tradition itself is a constant reflection and reinvention of the application of values that we believe come from God, come from the divine. But that's been the strength of Judaism for four thousand years. I don't believe that we're done yet. Uh, so yes, I believe that there's Jews in the 23rd and 24th century. But just like the Talmud gives an example of Moses in the academy of Rabbi Akiva, who lived in the in the first century um, of the Common Era, Moses is there and Rabbi Akiva's teaching, and Moses doesn't understand a single word Rabbi Akiva's saying. And one of the students finally says to him, you know, Rabbi, how do you know this? And Rabbi Akiva says, because Moses received Torah from Sinai. And so like, ah, Moses is now, uh, he's, he's satisfied that the Torah that he received from Sinai is still relevant to the Beit Midrash, to the Academy of Rabbi Akiva, even though he doesn't understand what's going on. So I'm sure that if you and I were to go through a time warp, a black hole, and come out on the other side in the 23rd or 24th century, and we'd go and visit a synagogue or an academy or a holograph <laughs> um, where Jews would gather and experience Judaism in their time, um, most of that would be unfamiliar to us. But it would still be authentically Jewish because it would still be the reflection, reinvention, and reinterpretation of Jewish life for that century. Um, it'd be fun to be able to do that. It, it occurs to me also that uh, the story you mentioned of, of Moses in the, the back of Rabbi Akiva's academy. I, I wonder if the Talmud is, uh, in addition to being the book of, of the Jewish oral tradition, also perhaps the first science fiction time travel adventure? It certainly has, um, in, in terms of its uh, imagination, right? That story is is exactly that. It's, it begins with God's receiving Torah and, Torah and God's putting on the top of certain letters crowns, and Moses wants to know why the crowns. 
And God says, because Rabbi Kiva is going to derive meaning from that in the future. So Moses says, let me, let me see that. And then the Talmud says that Moses simply turns around. So I have this image in my, in my head of Moses turning around and suddenly, you know, like, the, you know, some sort of... Through the guardian of forever. Through the guardian of forever or something. That's how he's there. Uh, that kind of imagination to set a, a, a story to teach an, a very important lesson, right? The Talmud saying that what we're doing now is new. Um, Moses would not recognize it, but it is still authentic. The use of that device, I think, is really powerful. And so I think science fiction, in some ways, operates similarly. It's a way of creating a framework, a vision of the future that is authentic because it's still based on, on universal human values. Is Star Trek Jewish? William Shatner was Jewish. Leonard Nimoy was Jewish. A lot of the other producers, writers over the course of the years have been Jewish. A lot of the themes that come out of it are themes that come from biblical sources, whether it's intentional or latent Jewish background from the people who are writers, producers, and directors, and so forth. Is Star Trek Jewish? No. Does it have um, very Jewish themes to it? Yes, I believe it does. It takes those themes and it, and it presents them in a universal way that I think all people can respond to. Reb Steve, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for being our inaugural guest on Reb Alert and Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you, Josh. Okay, Chava, we're back. Oh, no. Did you like Reb Alert? I did. I wasn't there, <laughs> if you didn't notice. I think sometimes I'll do these, and sometimes you'll do these. The Reb Alerts? Reb Alert, yeah. Okay. So, Josh, where are all the Jews in Star Trek? Okay, there's not that many. We're really going to have to grasp at straws to find them all. References to actual Jews. The only really clear one is from uh, a Voyager episode called The Killing Game, and it's actually said by a Nazi. If you remember this one, the Herosian have taken over Voyager, and they're, like, forcing the crew to take part in these, like, holographic simulations of atrocities in Federation history so that the Herosian can, like, hunt them and kill them for sport. And a Nazi SS officer says that the Jews will be defeated by Germany. So, space Nazis mention the Jews. The Deep Space Nine episode, Far Beyond the Stars, that I love and that you are not at. No spoilers. I'm going to say a little, but but I'm, <laughs> but I'm not going to give away <laughs> the plot okay. of it. It's a wonderful episode that is set in a parallel version of the 1950s in New York. And there are Haredi background performers. You know, we talked about Jewish coding. I think a really strong case can be made for a character in that episode named Herb Rusoff. He's played by Armin Shimmerman, who typically plays Quark on Deep Space Nine. But in this one, he's playing this New York leftist science fiction writer. Armin Shimmerman gives him like a wonderful affectation of being Ashkenazi Jew era appropriate for New York. And he's also based on Harlan Ellison, a real-life science fiction writer who was Jewish, who was very much engaged with his Jewish identity, and who wrote the beloved episode, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, though he hated the way it turned out and wanted to take his name off of it. Okay, there is a next-gen episode called The Outrageous Okana. It's not a very good one. It's like a rogue on the ship, and it's like one of those typical rogue episodes. Data is like on the holodeck with a comedian, and Memory Alpha says that when Data speeds up the comedian, the routine mentions the word Jews. I bu I'm not saying the Memory Alpha people are wrong, but I tried to listen to it, and I couldn't hear it at all. There I are trust some, you, Josh. 
There are some biblical figures who are Jews in the Jewish tradition who are mentioned in Star Trek, like Moses, David, and Solomon. Some of them are connected to the immortal Flint, a character from the original series who's like lived many different lives on Earth. And then Star Trek also has references to real-life historical Jews who, you know, come up because they're in the culture. So um, there's references to Albert Einstein, Groucho Marx, Jesus, Chico Marx, lots of people. And that's a little bit it. Uh, a little bit it. That's, I think we're going to spend a lot of time on this show thinking about characters and species in Star Trek that are coded as Jewish. But it's pretty slim pickings in canonical Star Trek. Now, if we look at the extended universe of novels and games and things like that, there are a lot more uh, Jewish characters. The one that comes to mind most obviously is there's a character named Captain David Gold of the USS Da Vinci in a, a novel series that's mostly written for young adults called Starfleet Corps of Engineers. This is the Jewiest Jew in all of Star Trek. He's married to a rabbi. There's a, a novel where he's like dealing with a situation while fasting for Yom Kippur. He officiates at a Klingon Jewish marriage, trying to fuse the two ceremonies together. I think eventually we're going to have to talk about David Gold and maybe do a little book club on those uh, Corps of Engineering shows. What do you think? Sounds good to me. And that is basically it for, for Jews in Star Trek. I mean, there are many more non-canon ones. Uh, from this expanded universe that I haven't mentioned. According to Gene Roddenberry, we're just trying to slip them in. <laughs> oh, sorry. That, that quote is never going to go away, is it? No. Nope. No. And it's tough because I think as we interview guests, like a lot of time people will bring up Gene Roddenberry as having this incredible vision. And he did have incredible vision, but it's hard. People are, people are flawed and he's a man of his era. Like, those views were wrong in the era in which he said them, but I guess they're sort of like not too unexpected and maybe this is like a never meet your hero situation. Yeah, I kind of forgive it. Why? Because it's a while ago. Who didn't dislike the Jews I think, in the 60s? I think lots of people. Really? Yeah. Even like just a little bit dislike? Definitely like the commonplace anti-semitism like deep-seated anti-semitism right of a, like a certain american brand of anti-semitism that that didn't want to kill the jews but thought oh, they yeah. were like like annoying and bad no yeah i'm saying like the just like more bland anti-semitism right a bit more um i think people who grew up in like small towns in the united states really anywhere not on the coast in the united states in the mid-20th century would probably say that like they encountered casual anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think it, now more. it's more of an attack on personality of Jews, basically. You should ask is... your mom. Like, she's from small town U.S., isn't she? That's true. Yeah. We'll see what she thinks about that one day. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we'll. Yeah, we'll ask her. In talking about Judaism in Star Trek, we are forced to confront the representation of Jews generally in TV and film. That's a really big question. I don't think we're going to address it all right here. No. Any any issues that, that really strike you as problematic? In the representation of Jews on television? Mm -hmm. They always care about Hanukkah more than every other holiday. Though, to be fair, I also know a lot of Jews who, like, they care don't do anything Hanukkah else but really care about holiday. Hanukkah. Yeah. But, like, for example, the Ross Geller character that, like, only cares about Hanukkah, and you didn't even know he was Jewish until then, except that, like... He's coded Jewish. Yeah, he's coded Jewish, exactly. And like Rachel Green too, because like she has a nose job. 
and is from Long Island. And when you meet her dad, it's hard to deny. Yeah, her dad is clearly a... Yeah, it's funny. There are two representations of Jews that we see a lot on TV. The completely secular Jew who has an ethnic identity as a Jew, but doesn't really engage with that, which is not not real, but it's not you and me. No, and it's also not most people I know, I don't think. The people that we know are... Probably like us a bit. Are like us because they come from places that we're like. For I think for a lot of American and Canadian Jews, it is just an ethnic identity. And then the Orthodox Jew is represented in TV, sometimes authentically. You know, there's shows like Shtizzle that I think do a good job of Haredi representation. And then there's shows that will have like an Orthodox stock character in a way that's offensive. I see hardly like which? any, um, like all the rabbis on Seinfeld, where oh. they're just like nasal and wearing like a poofy kippah. And you all <laughs> think like, no rabbi's wearing a poofy kippah. If you're wearing a kippah every day, you're going to get one that fits you really well. <laughs> I don't see a lot of people like you and me who we're not orthodox. We're not, we don't think of ourselves as like bound by Jewish law, but we're like constantly engaged with our Jewish identity, viewing the world through a a Jewish lens. There are a couple of exceptions. I honestly cannot think of any actually at this moment. I think transparent sort of hits it. The characters in that, they think about their Jewishness a lot. I don't think that it was like a great show, but I think that the representation of Jews is... I've never seen it. It it feels authentic to me. Uh, Some of the characters go to a reform synagogue. Mm. Um, They have the Israeli cousins that they go and visit and wrestle with issues there. There's diverse opinions on Jewish issues, on issues related to Israel. We see them doing holidays that are not Hanukkah not doing them right, but knowing that they're not doing them, I shouldn't say right, not doing them in a traditional way, but knowing that they're not doing it in a traditional way and engaging with it anyway, and having a family that has Jewish and non-Jewish spouses and partners showing up and sort of muddling through it all together. I also think that Rugrats possibly gets it the best. I love Rugrats. I love Rugrats, especially that uh, Tommy's, Tommy? Is it Tommy? It is. It's the bald baby. The, the one with the red hair is... Chucky. Chucky. Okay. Um, and Chucky's dad is coded Jewish, but they never really talk about huh. him being Jewish. But Tommy's, I think, grandfather, and I think you can only tell that it's his grandfather because it's basically him but old, teaches them about Passover in one of the episodes. Yeah, there's a... And pa- I think Hanukkah, there's an episode. There's a Passover one, there's a Hanukkah one. They're wonderful. You know the ADL called them anti-Semitic? What? Yes, the ADL called the representation of the grandfather in Rugrats anti-Semitic. You mean because he's like got a big nose? Yeah, but the <laughs> but the animators were like, no, I tried to draw my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that my grandfather actually looks like <laughs> my grandfather has a big schnoz and a Yiddish accent. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. so basically Rugrats gets it pretty good. Yeah, I haven't seen Broad City, but I've, I've heard it's pretty authentic. I've seen a couple episodes, and it is quite... I mean, they have, like, Jewish names that are not, like, over-the-top Jewy. Ilana? They go on birthright. They go on birthright, apparently. I didn't see that one. Like, I, I, I identify with them fairly closely, I would say. I think Mad Men does it pretty well, too. Um, oh, I don't remember that. it's set in the 1960s. I mean, it's not the lead characters, um, but a lot of ancillary characters who I think are like good, authentic representations of New York Jews in the 1960s. Hmm. I don't, I, I saw Mad Men, but not that. We should talk about like the limits of our own positionality in the Jewish world and how yeah. that's going to influence the podcast. I would like it to be limited to myself 
as in I don't want anyone to think that I'm speaking for anyone that is not me. Right. I barely even want to be speaking for me. Yeah. I don't I don't want anyone to take anything I say seriously <laughs> at any point in time. We have slightly different backgrounds. I come from a more secular one and you Orthodox. I'm from Toronto and you're from Montreal. Our bagels are better. <laughs> Your bagels are better. I'll give you that. We're both Ashkenazi Jews. We both live in Canada. We're both white. The Jewish world is like enormously diverse. And a lot of that diversity is missing from this room. It would be futile for us to list out how enormously huge and diverse the the Jewish world is. But I would just say that, like, if you're thinking about the Jewish world as, like, white Ashkenazi North American Jews, you are missing the majority of the Jewish world. And But you're not missing us. But you're not missing us. <laughs> That's and, like, where we are. <laughs> our views are authentically ours, but they, they certainly don't represent Jews as a whole, and nor do they represent like the categories that we are from as a whole. No, They're I don't. They're just yeah. our own. There's just, that's just us. But it does put onus on us, I think, to make sure, and we can try to do this in interviews and maybe with guests, we should try to ensure that the diversity of the Jewish world is reflected in the conversations we have. Yeah, and we bring in some outside perspective, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. Would you like to assign our Hebrew school homework for next week? Okay, so our Hebrew school homework for next week is to watch the Voyager episode called Day of Honor. I believe it's in season four. Yeah, it's the third episode of season four. Yeah, so make sure you watch that before you listen to our next, next podcast episode. Why is that? Because we are going to explore the theme of Yom Kippur in the Delta Quadrant. Guys, it's a Klingon Yom Kippur episode. Now that we've said it, you'll be like, wow, this could not be more Yom Kippur. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of Star Trek and the Jews. We'd like to thank Rabbi Steve Wernick from Beth Zedek Congregation in Toronto for being our first rabbi on Rev Alert. Our opening fanfare is by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Our end theme is Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. We'll see you next time for our Delta Quadrant Yom Kippur episode. <laughs>